Rising. We have a showtastic show for you today, <laughs> and we're going to kick it off in a minute. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. Nice to see you in another of my favorite shades of green. I know this it week. delights you and me coordinate accidentally just a little sort of. bit. I'm coordinating with what you wore yesterday. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Maybe we'll get it right tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. All right, what are we talking about? Well, a 19 year old man has been arrested and charged with threatening to kill, kidnap, or inflict harm on a president, vice president, or family member after he drove his vehicle into a barrier outside the White House last night. Police say their preliminary investigation indicates Cy Varsith Kandula of Chesterfield, Missouri, acted intentionally when he drove into the White House barricade. Officials retrieved a Nazi flag from the U-Haul, which you can see laid out in the street in this photograph. A law enforcement source also told NBC News that the suspect made some kind of inflammatory comments at the scene. Mm. Kendula has also been charged with assault with a dangerous weapon, reckless operation of a motor vehicle, destruction of federal property, and trespassing. No weapons or ammunition were found in the truck. No injuries were reported. This situation is still developing and we'll obviously report on more information as it becomes available. We really don't know a lot at all. This is obviously a very young man, 19-year-old from Missouri um, of a Indian ethnicity and name in some sense or uh, Pakistani or something from the South part Asian, of the world, South Asia, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's nothing more we know about his motives. Uh, his motives, obviously, the finding of the Nazi flag is raising the specter of it being, yeah, having Nazi ideas, or, and then uh, now there's a lot of, I'm seeing on Twitter a lot of people saying, well, here's another white supremacist who's not white, isn't that interesting, uh, with the, like, the criticism of the idea you could be a white supremacist if you're not actually white, which is something we've talked about before. Now, no one actually was calling him a white supremacist in the first place that I can see. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, yeah, don't, he's, not, he's, he's, he's not white. Uh, now, he, might, he could still have Nazi ideas, or it could have nothing to do with anything. Who knows? Um, it, we should probably note that, so he crashed into the barricade. So mm -hmm. there's a barricade surrounding the White House. You so can't get there's close. There's the White House, and then there's the park. Yeah. And he crashed into, my understanding, looking at the, uh, the photos that the Washington Post yeah. uh, put out to demonstrate what happened on the scene, you know, crashed on the other side of the park. Right. So, on the, you know, the, the far side, not the White House side of the park. So a good distance from yeah. the White House. There's so That was many, my point. It got nowhere near. Nowhere near. It was not going to get anywhere near. You can't, there's no way you can get a vehicle and drive it and get it anywhere near the White House these days. People can't even walk, I, I don't think, anymore in the park. There's a, a road between the park and the White House that you used to be able to walk across. School groups could, like, take pictures. That was a great place to take pictures yeah. near the White House. Pennsylvania White House in the background. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't do that anymore. That's all, that's all roped off. Mm -hmm. um, it's... It, Frankly, it's annoying as a, as a pedestrian living in the city, <laughs> the greater uh, barricades everywhere that, around the, the, sure. uh, the White House and then also the Capitol. You know, they'll come up. They've, they've gone down since January 6th. Uh, but uh, it, over time, over the course of my time living here in D.C., it's gotten uh, much more fenced off, the Yeah, so the, the motive question is a good one, in part compounded by the fact that this, if it was intended to be some kind of attack on the president, which is what he's been charged with, it's a very ineffectual one. There were no weapons in the vehicle. The vehicle came nowhere near the physical structure of the White House. They did reportedly have to, or they chose to evacuate the hotel 
that's on the corner of where the accident happened, the Hay Adams Hotel, I guess out of, a, out of an abundance of precaution. But uh, they used a robot something to go into the U-Haul to make to see make if sure it had no any explosives. Threat. There was no explosives. Yeah, it's just it's hard to understand why somebody would put themselves in a situation where they're facing significant criminal penalties for what seems to be right. a very symbolic demonstration that has the effect of wrecking a car, not anything else. And then the inclusion of a flag without any other sort of ideological manifestos or, you know, they, there was this reporting that he said something inflammatory at the scene, uh, but it's not it's not been reported exactly what he did say. So, you know, this is a situation that I think is ripe to breed suspicion, I, I'm, you know, and to, right. then, you know, for the people who are claiming it's a false flag, et cetera. On the other hand of it, it is so incredibly lazy <laughs> that if it were to be a false flag, it is unclear who is I mean, this, he, who this is for. But so. he is not the first person to drive a vehicle into the barricade around at least the, the Capitol. It happened, there was a car that did it at the Capitol just a year and a half ago or so. Mm. I don't know exactly when that was. Um, same thing, no chance of succeeding, no explosives or weapons, just drove into the barricade. Um, yeah, look, crazy people. There was a fence hopper. Uh, there was a, fence there was a guy a, on foot who got over the wall and I think was sprinting across the White House lawn and mm -hmm. then they got him. I don't know. People are deranged. People do things that don't make any sense to the rest of us. Yeah, I guess for some, some and we look for, for me, broader political more, context. You know, hopping over the fence seems to me intent to get into the White House. Crashing right. into a barricade on the other side of a big park yeah. <laughs> that's you know still some distance from the fence that is then around the White House just seems like. It's, it's, it's like me punching the air in the studio and saying, it was an attack on the president almost. <laughs> Whoa, just, Brianna, dangerous. I mean, he's a 19-year-old. He maybe just plays video games. He thought he'd use the dash action after he got out of the car. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh. I, we'll definitely continue to cover this. It's unclear, obviously, what's going on there. I mean, I mean we're, we're making light of it a little bit. No one was hurt at all, no. so it's, there's nothing to, there's no somber right. attitude, really, to bring to it. Right. Um, Good on the Secret Service for acting quickly. I guess there's a reason the barricades are up the way they are. Yeah, there was no chance of this ever imperiling anyone in the White House uh, as, as it should be. Um, people need help. I don't know what yeah. else to say. People need help. So it's, it, here's an interesting dynamic. Um, there has been reporting, conjecture, some polling to indicate that uh, Joe Biden, uh, sorry, rather, pres uh, former President Trump being under threat um, from various uh, investigations, uh, civil suits, et cetera, has had the effect of having his uh, supporters circle the wagons around him. His polling has improved despite people's predictions. He is obviously leading, generally speaking, in the primary race and additionally was up seven points against Biden in a poll that we discussed yesterday. He seems to be getting strength from the perception that he's being attacked by his enemies. And there's an argument that, um, you know, the climate of uh, COVID but in, in 2020, the perception that Trump was not doing all that he could really helped Joe Biden as well in that election electoral context, you know, do we think that the, the this, these kinds of stories, the reality or perception of Joe Biden in the White House being under kind of a physical threat, evocative of one-sixth perhaps to some people, um, is something that 
is going to help people feel defensive of the institution, defensive of Biden politically in any way? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe people are feeling that way. I think most people who are very mad at President Biden for his policies and very supportive of former President Trump are expressing that in healthier ways, trying to get Trump elected again. Um, and again, we don't even really know what his discernible ideology— Politics I mean, are, yeah. I, you have to point this out, because it so happens that he's Indian or Southeast Asian or whatever it is. That is where the swastika uh, symbol comes from. Before it, it was is. appropriated by the Nazis, it was a symbol of, like, peace and love and Yes. I mean, of course, he does the... have a Nazi flag, not a random drawing sure. of a swastika, or it incorporated in some traditional Indian art or anything like that. It's— it's sure. not just the swastika. Well, I haven't seen exactly what the flag looks like. Uh, they had the... a picture of it laid out on the ground by the U-Haul truck in some of the reporting, and it was just a, you know, Look, take yeah. cut paste out of the history books, sound of music. There, there we go. I have it up on the screen for us now. So that's that's unambiguous. But the question is, what yeah. is that to mean exactly? Right. Uh, so we will we will let you know as soon as we find out. I'm sure they'll be rolling reporting on this uh, as the day goes on, and we'll have more rising for you right after this. Tucker Carlson sent a cease and desist letter to the draft Tucker PAC, which was seemingly created to encourage the former Fox host to run for president in 2024, according to reporting from Mediaite. The draft Tucker PAC tweeted last week, Republicans need a new leader that can stand up to Biden. It's time to draft Tucker Carlson. But if you try to search the account on Twitter now, a message comes up that says it does not exist. Mm. The letter was sent by Carlson's lawyer, Hermit Dillon, and it says, It has come to Mr. Carlson's attention that you are soliciting contributions and donor contact information from the public by representing that the funds will be used to draft Mr. Tucker to run for president in 2024. Mr. Carlson will not run for president in 2024 under any circumstances, and therefore your misrepresentations are damaging to Mr. Carlson and defrauding his supporters. If you do not immediately cease and desist, your efforts to solicit money to draft Mr. Carlson uh, will we will use every legal measure at our disposal to vindicate his rights and protect his supporters from these misrepresentations. Good on Tucker for doing this. Uh, it is a huge problem in political fundraising in general, but honestly, it feels like a particular problem on the right. Maybe you could tell me that's wrong and it yeah. happens on the left, too. But yeah. there are so many right-wing figures grifting mm. their, their their viewers, supporters, et cetera, into getting donations. Um, Trump has been, I'm just deplorable on this front. Mm. I mean, there's no way around it. The, all of the, you know, donate to help you know, Mr. Trump, secure our elections, blah, blah, blah. It's not, it's not going to anything actually approximate political activity. Um, there's a lot of misrepresentation in email campaigns. Some Republicans wonder why they're, you know, these emails keep getting marked as spam because they're spammy because mm -hmm. you're trying to get people to give you money for very dubious causes. So I am very glad to see Tucker um, just shut that down. Yeah, it seems like the ethical thing to do. Uh, I wonder what you make of the implication, not the implication, the direct Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. But he is absolutely not interested in running for president. It doesn't surprise me at all. People <laughs> have always put forth his name without his willingness, without him saying anything 
at all that could be remotely construed as interest. He has said emphatically many times over that he will not run. Um, I, I, he, he's been saying that as long as, you know, when I, when I knew him, when I worked for him years mm -hmm. and years and years ago. So I, I never, I do not expect him to be a candidate. He will play the role of, he, he will exert influence on the nominee in the way that he has by being this very prominent, um, uh, uh, conservative personality with a large following and and principles that he wants to shift the party more closely toward. But no, he's, he's not going to be candidate. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And do you think that this, do you think he has an, an organic distaste for the idea of being in politics? Or do you think it has something to do with this race not being the time, uh, feelings that he has about the candidates that have already announced, either positive or negative, seeing an opportunity for him to grow his independent career now that he's left Fox? Do you have any instincts there? Um, not really. I just think he's not the kind of per I mean, you have to be a little bit of like a sociopath to run for office, right? To Do you have to uh, love giving these, giving speeches? And I, I don't think he likes the politicking part of it or, or like the underhanded backroom dealing part. I mean, also he's like, he has a family, he enjoys spending time with sure. his family. It totally takes over your life, and I think it just doesn't appeal to him. Yeah. It appeals to him to have a television show, to talk, to speak, to write, and spend time with his family. And I mean, he enjoys, right, he has, he has a house in Florida mm -hmm. and a house in Maine. I don't think he aspires to return to the district full-time either. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's a mix of personal reasons and just not just not what he's interested in Relatable, doing. to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, that's mostly speculation on my part of the impressions I get from Great. the interactions I've had with him. But I, for which, which I totally understand. I feel 100% the same way. Sure, sure. Well, recent reporting from the Daily Signal reveals Fox News Corporation's official stances on, quote, woke ideology, as well as the outlet's policies on gender transition for employees, which, according to Daily the Daily Signal, says Fox News employees are allowed to use bathrooms that align with their gender identity rather than their biological sex and permitted to dress in alignment with their preferred gender. They must also be addressed by their preferred name and pronouns in the workplace. Now, these policies reportedly come from a handbook dated January 2021. Former CNN host Brian Stelter tweeted, this leak is coming one month after Tucker Carlson Tonight was canceled. It's not a coincidence. Right-wing figures have bashed Fox over the alleged policies for trans employees. The Daily Wire's Matt Walsh said Tucker fought behind the scenes against my blacklisting, even managed to have me on a few times over the past year. Now that he's gone, there's no stopping Fox's march leftward, and now there is zero daylight between Fox and MSNBC on the trans issue. Walsh also reportedly called for Fox to receive the full Bud Light treatment. <laughs> Former producer for Carlson's show told The Signal they, Fox, want you to think it's this place that supports traditionally conservative values, but in reality, they're pushing this nonsense behind the scenes. This is a little confusing to me because the memo is dated from 2021, mm -hmm. long before Tucker Carlson left. It's 2023. That was at least two years ago. Who knows what uh, kind of recommendations were made even prior to that. This feels like those stories during the COVID, uh, you know, the peak of uh, the COVID pandemic, where people were criticizing uh, Fox News for being very skeptical of uh, mandates and requirements in the workplace to mask and get vaccinated. But at Fox News, there were standards that were in line with what other corporations were doing in terms of mm -hmm. masking and mandating well, and those and vaccination. And, and here's, I think, the key thing, not to like go out of my way to defend Fox necessarily, but... Uh, well, I guess that's what I'm about to do. So a lot of these policies are not willfully chosen, but corporations have no choice because they need to not ha take on 
liability. Was well, that the same for this, yes. this HR trans policy? Well, in the COVID like case, it. they were. It was a mix of following New York law mm -hmm. and and uh, things of that nature. Yeah, and here, look, every company, no matter how anti-woke they are, has to have an HR department or they're going to be sued out of existence. Right. And they have to have policies, policies of accommodation because they'll be sued out of, out of existence. On Fox News and on other right-wing places or free-thinking places, they uh, they inveigh against this kind of, mm -hmm. you know, policy by HR or the sort of DEI uh, Everything that is chilling free speech and having mm -hmm. due process and, and and voiding like freedom of association and is having I think a very pernicious effect actually on our society and they're very against it and they speak against it but, but until it has gotten rid of you do have to follow so, it or so you'll I, just take I, on so much liability. I, I'm, you can't I'm do agreeing anything. with you, but my point is that now Matt Walsh is trying to use this policy to create a vendetta against Fox News as a company when quite obviously. It can be the case that the people who work at Fox News right. aren't especially into this. Nothing has really changed at Fox News. It seems like a longstanding policy. But now there are people who, for various reasons, solidarity with Tucker Carlson, a desire to grow independent media at the expense of legacy media, whatever it is, and you can agree with all those objectives, are trying to use the fact of an HR policy to distort a reality about what Fox is essentially and what the, the hosts actually believe in order to turn a buck in or get fact, viewers or get accolades. It's actually, <laughs> Matt Walsh is with The Daily Wire. This is actually somewhat similar to the situation The Daily Wire found itself in with the with Steven Crowder. Remember when they had offered him a kind of, a, a very generous- yeah. what, $50 million? $50 million contract that he found insulting and he went and he went ballistic on them. He publicly attacked them, said they're selling out to, to woke. He said mm -hmm. they've gone woke because in the contract they were gonna say, and it was preliminary and they were still gonna negotiate it, but they had started from a position of saying, well, if you do get demonetized or suspended or taken down on YouTube on the platforms where you're making money for us, then we're gonna that's gonna come out of the 50 million we're paying you, mm -hmm. or else we're just throwing money at you for nothing in, in mm -hmm. case this happens. And he said this is, you know, well this is tyranny. This is you you abiding by or agreeing to the censorship that big tech is doing. And th they say we don't agree with it. We think those policies are wrong. We think they shouldn't have them. We're gonna speak out against them, but while they're in place, if we don't follow them, there's no company. Yeah. Which is the exact same thing that Fox is doing. Yeah, I mean, it's a little akin to Matt Walsh saying, there's fire safety ha uh, warnings, right. there's exit signs in the building, this is uh, OSHA right. wokeness going out of control More tyranny, Fox. thank you, Brianna, for calling, you know, big fire out to uh, abridge more of our freedom. If, if I want freedom, a triangle shirt freedoms. waist fire, Fox News headquarters, then gosh oh darn boy. it, that's oh my entitlement boy. as a free American. But it is interesting how much uh, criticism I'm seeing, this is the most um, uh, attacks on Fox that I've seen from other conservative people. Newsmax is doing a lot of critical coverage of it. Uh, so it, it is, I, th I think they do smell fairly or not. Chum in the they water. Smell, yeah. yeah, blood in the water, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, we will continue to follow it and we'll have more rising right after this. Anheuser-Busch plans to buy back cans of expired Bud Light beer from wholesalers after experiencing a drop in sales in the wake of the brand's partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. This is according to new reporting, the Wall Street Journal. Apparently, the beer giant is looking to make amends with alienated customers, good luck with that, as Bud Light sales have failed to recover from conservatives' boycott.
In its bid to win back customers, the company will reportedly have Bud Light sponsor a veterans group for the first time, interestingly for the first time, and is planning to promote the beer in commercials that will play heavily on themes like football and country music, according to the journal. Ted Cruz weighed in on the GOP's place in stoking the culture war as we head into the 2024 campaign cycle. Let's watch. As Republicans prepare for 2024's presidential campaign, the fact that one cannot win a GOP primary without titillating culture war addicts is undermining the, the party's prospects for winning the next general election. Reuters has been reporting that GOP mega donor Peter Thiel doesn't want to get financially involved this time around because he's worried about focusing on things like transgenderism, on abortion. What do you make about these warnings that you're going to alienate big donors and potentially voters by focusing on these issues? Listen, I think, number one, the Democrat Party on issues of culture has, has gone really extreme. This is a party that embraces medical transition sex changes for children, eight, nine, ten-year-old children, medical surgeries, sterilizing kids, removing perfectly healthy body parts. I, I, I got to say, I, I, I think that is extreme. I think that's child abuse. Hmm. Well, you know, he makes an interesting point because when we were younger, the beer that kids drank, <laughs> the beer that was marketed wasn't to kids, trans, yes. would make them straighter, <laughs> less less LGBTQIA. Yeah. So it's absurd. Okay. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. So I'm there's sorry. a lot here. So sure. I think Ted Cruz is right. I don't know so much the the Democratic Party as it is the Democratic Party people who associate are associated with the Democratic mm -hmm. Party student activists. Uh, TikTok influencers, mm -hmm. I don't know, academics, um, far left city council members in Portland or something. Those people uh, have are, are much farther left on transgender issues and some other cultural issues. Um, most people, even a lot of people who are Democrats otherwise, um, you are, are more to the right than the most far left liberal people on trans issues, specifically with um, with sports teams, mm -hmm. right? I don't think people care so much about bathrooms anymore. The bathroom isn't like some sacred experience. I don't know. Uh, well, if, if Fox News is uh, allowing trans people to use the gender of their choosing, then it's a whole new world. The war, the war is lost, truly. Uh, <laughs> so I agree that there has been there's overreach in both directions. But what I think the thrust of this question was, and it, it's accurate, you know, there, there's caring about wokeness going too far and like making fun of it. And in fact, the backlash against Bud Light is not. It's not been a government. It's not been a Republican political maneuver. It's 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 been conservatives. It's it's voluntary. It's just people rejecting this sure, product based are, on that. So it's fine. Well, but there are a lot of not just conservative people uh, in the public in the media, but conservative politicians who have actively encouraged the Bud Light boycott. Sure, fine. You but know. but it's but it's different than. For instance, DeSantis has actually gone with, you know, a legal battle with the Disney Corporation right, sure. that impugns some freedom of speech uh, values. And I think it's that kind of thing yeah. that is turning off Peter Thiel as a donor, uh, yeah. will be harder to sell in a general election. There, there's, there's making fun of wokeness, which is, I think, a popular thing to do because wokeness is not it's true, is not beloved as beloved by the general public as it is by like DEI consultants and you know some people on Twitter. 
However, it doesn't always have an obvious policy component, and Republicans have tried to search for one because they sense that that's, that's where they can succeed, is because everybody's annoyed by this. But then what do you actually do? And then it seems well, like you're obsessed with it, and then it's also, violating just, freedom of speech. Let's take just one second to remember what we're describing as wokeness. Amid the dozens, hundreds of advertisements from Bud Light that are about Clydesdales and cars and women on the beach and kids drinking at parties and football games, there was one choice to get a sponsor who was trans who sat on TikTok and drank a can of beer. It is woke. What we're describing as wokeness is a, a woman who happens to be trans drinking beer and getting paid by Bud, Weiser, uh, sorry, by Bud Light to do that. This is in addition to all their other ads which have kept being ads, which are the typical types of God and country ads that they've been doing since time immemorial, they chose to try to broaden their market share by appealing to a community that's under-targeted one time, and that's been characterized. That's that's what wokeness got amok is. If that's people's position, that's people's position. But I think it's worth noting that over half, we talked about this poll, I think, last week, over half of registered voters say political tax attacks on trans kids' families are a major problem. So to the extent that there is a feeling that making fun of wokeness is popular, it abuts the reality that there are literally hundreds of laws being promulgated across the country, some of which are failing, some of which are passing, which are targeting not you know, uh, you know, just children, but inclusive of children, trans families with trans children, their right to make decisions about the health care of their own child personally in their household, but also which constrain the ability of adults to dress the way they like, to live their lives the way they like, to take, to take the medical uh, uh, paths that they would like to take. So much so that Marjorie Taylor Greene's husband recently got into some hot water because he's on camera doing like a joke TV segment some years ago in drag and in, in, a, in an act that would be prohibited by some of the laws that some Republicans are trying to pass across the country. And people are pointing out that this is exactly why people are concerned. The laws are so broad. Some of these laws are so overreaching that they would preclude Rudy Giuliani from very famously dressing up in drag and making jokes with Donald Trump. Well, right. Marjorie Taylor Greene's husband from dressing in, in drag. George Santos from dressing yeah, yeah, yeah. in drag. I, I, and I, I on find and on a lot of the, the the lumping in drag stuff with the broader transgender issue that Republicans have been doing in some of this legislation to be very confused and actually unhelpful because they're very different things. Men dressing up in women's costumes has a long. History, it, it was part of the military. It's been in like all male spaces because it's it's funny and entertaining because men and women are different. And men putting on the costume of of woman doesn't magically transfer you into transform you into a woman. In fact, it's very easy to tell and obvious that this is not someone who was intended to be well, a woman. I don't know about which almost is opposite We're not watching the same the, drag shows. <laughs> <laughs> but that is actually what I'm saying is on some level is 100% philosophically different from what's going on with the trans issue, which is claiming that you can alter aspects of your appearance and then actually change your underlying gender sexual dynamic, no, it's which changing, is the opposite of, it's, it's, of drag. It's having a, a different identity. Trans people aren't claiming to be cis people. That's why we have words like trans and cis, but they are claiming a different gender identity than the one they are assigned at birth. Right. And that is... Which is not what you're doing in drag. You're wearing a costume. Right. But both 
to different degrees by different laws are being prohibited. And I think that, that, that when you have the effect of, what was it, one of these um, Western states where this law went into effect and they realized that it, it literally pertained to one like 10-year-old girl in the whole state, and when they realized that they had gone through all of this energy to basically prevent one 10-year-old girl in the state from playing on the t soccer team of her choice, they were like, mm, actually, this is not the kind of community we want to be, and backtracked it. And so I do think that the, this movement has sowed the seeds of its own destruction. Bud Light's taking a, a hit. We'll see what happens. We'll see if they try to they said they're going to do more car ads or, or whatever, football, typical types of beer ads to try to get back the market share. You know, do we want to live in a world where companies are maybe even moving in an actively transphobic direction in order to try to get market share? I think we'll some see. people just want, the comp want it to be non-political. Is it political to have mixed race people, mixed race case. couples in ads? There was a whole news cycle a few years ago where people were very upset about that. There's too many, there's too many biracial okay, I think people that in, in Cheerios ads. underestimating the extent to which Dylan Mulvaney in particular is a political activist and is she? to some people an obnoxious one. Is she a political activist? And that there is blowback to that. Or is she a, a, a trans person who talks about her transition on TikTok, a free country? Well, it is a free country. and that she is welcome to do that and people are welcome to respond to it as they have. Yeah. They have responded to it by wholly rejecting the product she was selling or no, representing. Some that. people have responded by choosing to be, I gotta say, more invested in owning the libs than obviously drinking the beer if they're choosing, which is th that they've historically chosen and liked and they can continue to do that. And I'm sure Anheuser-Busch, a huge Beer, alcohol, monopoly, <laughs> a pseudo, pseudo monopoly in this country will do just fine. Many people are boycotting Bud Light to buy other Anheuser-Busch products. Uh, in fact, an early uh, angle of the story was that uh, an alcohol that people were, a beer that people were advocating in the alternative was in fact endorsed by Caitlyn Jenner, another trans woman. So there's a lot of inconsistency One that there here. has not been a lot of blowback to because... Well, no, there is. In fact, uh, we, did, we don't have enough time to really get into this, but Matt Walsh and Caitlyn Jenner ended up in a Twitter fight uh, last week precisely because Caitlyn Jenner was making representations about how uh, Republicans, here we have the tweet up on the screen, you know, aren't actually against transness. They don't say that trans isn't real. They, you know, that is not the GOP. The GOP and MAGA are a big tent party. This is what Caitlyn Jenner is saying. And Matt Walsh says, nope, <laughs> your position is completely unintelligible. You assert the validity of transgenderism. You claim that you are a woman. You accepted the Woman of the Year Award, and you declare that trans women in women's sports are actually men and, and don't belong there. Total incoherent. Now, I don't agree with Matt Walsh's position. I do agree that Caitlyn Jenner's position is incoherent and she, that she's trying to have it both ways, being both within the GOP and a proud trans I, woman. I mean, I don't know. She's saying that, I, I mean, I, based on what I'm reading that tweet, I, she sounds like she's taking the position that we should be broadly accepting of trans people, trans women are women, but it's not appropriate for them to be in all the same spaces as cis women, including sports. And there are questions about when to engage in these interventions for children. And that seems broadly representative among where, where the country's at. No, I think most of the country is, is there. Matt Walsh is saying that at the same time she's making arguments about women, trans women 
shouldn't be in cis women spaces, taking cis women's awards, taking cis women's spot on teams. Caitlyn Jenner herself has been very happy to do exactly that, getting exactly those kinds of awards and accolades from liberals up until this point. So he is right that she is being deeply hypocritical about this. She no, thinks that there's one that. standard for her and a, a different standard for other kinds of trans people. Matt, Matt, Matt Walsh is correct about that. I think that that you can't, if, if Caitlyn Jenner said, no, I'm a- There's a different standard for kids? No, she's, that is not what she's saying. I mean, that's just not what she's saying. And that's not what, what Matt, Matt Walsh is pointing out. You can't sit here and say, it's okay. the GOP says it's okay to be trans, trans people are included, we're a big tent party, when it's Republicans across this country, literally hundreds of laws promulgating saying exactly the opposite. And I'm sorry, at, Matt Walsh again, is right. Again, at kids. No, not at kids. We just had a whole conversation about the anti-drag laws. There are a lot of laws, and people keep trying to act like this is a kids-only issue. It's not. This is a fundamental civil liberties issue that is affecting adults all around this country. Access to different kinds of health care. Barriers are being erected. You know, I, it, it is not just about kids, but they want to start there. They want to the add The vast like, majority of the laws I've seen target not. kids in these, at, at the medical it's, intervention. It's not. I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's it's just not. You don't not. agree that they're mostly aimed at underage people? No. If we're talking the medical interventions and what bars they can be at, whether there's drag? No. I don't. I do not agree that most of the anti-trans legislation that's coming down the pipe All right. Well, that's an empirical yet. question. Maybe we can do another segment on, uh, on but, that and what's And also, that. regardless, that's just not what Caitlyn Jenner is talking about here. It, you know, and that's Matt, Matt Walsh's critique is that Caitlyn Jenner's behavior as a very adult woman in her 70s is hypocritical because she is, is accepting certain kind of accolades for her own life and entering into quote-unquote women's spaces by accepting the Women of the Year Award happily at the same time that she's arguing that, well, I, I think that tr trans women shouldn't be in cis women's spaces and I'm in line with that GOP position. That's that's the inconsistency that's being pointed out there by, by Walsh. And I think he's correct about the inconsistency. I don't think this is necessarily an inconsistency, but you tell us what you think in the comments and we'll have more rising right after this. The NAACP has issued a travel advisory to the state of Florida in response to what the organization says are Governor Ron DeSantis's discriminatory and anti-black policies. NAACP President Derek Johnson said this about the advisory yesterday. Well, the governor has uh, perfected the art of doing stunts to gain campaign contributions. Unfortunately, this will impact people's lives. Uh, we should not use race or othering as a tool to weaponize against people. And unfortunately for a large percentage of the Floridians, that's what he has done. Therefore, we are advising African-Americans and others that if you travel to Florida, beware that your life is not valued, that we have a political landscape that could cause harm as we prepare for the 2024 elections to right-size the political landscape in the state of Florida. One MSNBC guest is facing backlash online after she said Florida now amounts to a terrorist state for black and queer people. And I really appreciate the NAACP's guidance uh, on this issue. You know, I just took my family to, to spring break in Florida recently, and I think about all of the folks who traveled there for sun and joy um, and peace and restoration. And to be reminded that actually this is getting to the point where Florida is about to be a terrorist state to, to many of us here in America, certainly as a lesbian, as a black woman. I don't want to have anything to do with the place. Meanwhile, over on Fox News, Florida Representative Byron Donalds pushed back against the advisory, calling it stupid. 
This is just really stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Look, I've lived in Florida since 1996 after I graduated high school. Uh, I went to college, um, got married, started a career, you know, lived normal life, went to church, raised kids, uh, coached sports. You know, yesterday when the Miami Heat, they were actually, and congratulations to the Heat going up 3-0 in the Boston Celtics, by the way. But when the Miami Heat, you know, were beating down the Celtics last night in Miami, TNT was showing footage of different boats in the water. Mm -hmm. And on a bunch of these different boats are black people having a good time out on the water. I don't even know what the NAACP is talking about. This is silly and it's dumb. It's political. It makes no sense. We should be focused on making sure people actually have the opportunity to achieve, which Florida is actually doing and thriving in way better than, than other states, let's say New York or California or Washington State. We're doing a significantly better job helping black Americans succeed. Um, and it's not just about me. It's about all the millions of black people that live in our state. Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed the remarks from the previous clip we, we played, the woman saying, Florida's unsafe for black people, terrorist state. I was just there on vacation, <laughs> but it's far too dangerous. <laughs> it's reminiscent of, of, uh, of during COVID of, of a, a certain kind of liberal who is like Florida, you know, where Ron DeSantis is just <laughs> allowing the Rona to, you know, the Grim Reapers falling around people on beaches. Yeah. Yes, I was just there, photographed there, um, having a, a good time, but it's not safe for you. Yeah, look, I, I think it's ridiculous. Um, it's obviously an exaggeration and overstatement. I think it has always been the case that people want to spend time, move to places, vacation in places where they feel respected and, what, and that their cultural values are respected. It is not news that people who are gay or who belong to some other marginalized group often avoid parts of the country where they feel like they're going to get stared at, scrutinized, or even criticized. And, you know, we have a long history in this country of something called the Green Book, which was a travel guide for black people so that they would know where they could stop on the road and actually be served and have accommodations in a country that was segregated. I mean, it's nothing new. Is that new. what that movie's about? It is what that movie is about. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it, but I do love me some Viggo Mortensen. The point Same. is that I, I, you know, this is, this is nothing new. And of course, on the other side of this, Conservatives have been wringing their hands about liberal cities in disarray and acting like if you walk into the New York subway, you're going to get a crime done to you and how San Francisco was a wasteland despite $8,000 apartments and people very much still wanting to live there. Um, well, that's part of what makes it a wasteland. No, no, that, <laughs> so that, it's that so expensive a, to move there. That is a problem. The idea that like, <laughs> demand is somehow yeah. shrinking because these places are no longer desirable. It's a wasteland it's, it's of zoning bizarre. requirements. <laughs> sure. It's, it's, a, it's a wasteland of affordable housing for sure. Um, so, you know, people are going to hand ring and say this kind of stuff. What I'm most frustrated about, though, when I'm watching um, Derek Johnson, NAACP president, on TV and vang against Florida is that I've noticed he's been very silent over the last few years when there have been real uh, disappointments for the black community under the Biden administration. Uh, Famously, not famously enough, because the uh, mainstream media declined to cover it, and many prominent journalists ran cover for Biden when this happened. But there was a really explosive leak of a call that Biden had with, you know, about 10, I'd say, civil rights uh, leaders, including Derek Johnson. Kamala uh, Harris was on the call. Uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, head of the NAAC Legal Defense Fund, was on the call, and uh, Al Sharpton was on it, and others. And during that call, various leaders, including principally Sherilyn Eiffel, made very specific entreaties to President Biden about what he could do using executive authority, because at the time it wasn't clear that we were going to that the Democratic Party was going to uh, win Georgia. This was before that uh, runoff election. Uh, that he could do with his executive authority to help Black people and to advance portions of the George Floyd Justices and Policing Act. Remember, this was the year 2020. 
Joe Biden was very short-tempered. He cut her off. He interrupted. He told her that he's been fighting for black people longer than she has, and that he, they, the people on the call should basically defer to his authority. They all sat there. They took it. They didn't say anything in response. When the call was leaked, even though it embarrassed them pretty horrifically, none of them took that opportunity to speak out against Joe Biden. They've been running cover for him since. Joe Biden set a one-year deadline from the George, George Floyd's murder to pass the George uh, Floyd Justice and Policing Act. He, of course, did not. It's dead on arrival, as along with a bunch of other voting rights legislations and things that the people on that call stated as their primary communities. Joe Biden said he was going to cancel 100 percent of HBCU debt. He has canceled not that, none of it. He, he, he proceeded to pursue a student debt policy and, and program that would enable it to get caught up in the courts instead of, again, using executive authority like he could have done on day one. Um, and he has been a colossal disappointment for black Americans. And we saw a recent poll that shows that black Americans' interest in voting for Joe Biden is low compared to other groups. So instead of worrying about what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, I think that the president and the NAACP should probably be a little bit more concerned with how ostensibly his own party has betrayed the interests of his community. Hmm. Well said. Yeah, I think uh, I like you. It's just a kind of ridiculous stunt. It's getting in on the um, the Florida fever, um, the the lust to be angry with Ron DeSantis. Which, look, you can criticize him for his policies, but the idea that like Florida is now Afghanistan or something is just utterly absurd. And those travel um, warnings and for it not, it other not countries are silly to kind anyone. of too. Yeah, America will say don't go to right. And this isn't America. This is just an interest group saying this. No, 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 for yes. sure. But I'm saying there's a certain parallel to. I mean, I have lived. I mean, I'm biased, but I have lived a number of places that America says you should travel. And in all places, in all countries, there are places you go and places you don't go. Yeah. Precautions you take, etc. And so I'm sure there are parts of. Florida that are not the safest. There are parts of New York that are not Noma the safest. I live in Noma and Capitol Hill. And <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But you know, everyone likes to get on TV. I've lived and... in places where I don't feel safe because of the high taxes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the wharf is getting crazy here in DC. <laughs> so many restaurants. The wharf, I don't have, does not have um, scooter highways the way I want there to be. Um, oh there's a no-go zone. I won't get into that. You're, you don't care that much. All right. We need representation here in DC, so Robbie can. Take take his complaints up somewhere. Uh, by the way, Fox News hosted a panel of 2024 voters this week. Here's what one had to say about Ron DeSantis's education policies in Florida. As a Democrat leading toward Biden, what, is, what would you like to see from, from a president in 2024? Uh, let's see. I'm going to pick education, and I'm going to say that education is a key issue in our society. So I want no books banned. I'm very anti-anything being banned. You don't want your kid to read it? That's fine. I want my kid to read a little bit so of everything. what about like the— 2,500 books banned so far, Will. Trans, yeah. The trans— I, they, she can, I have one daughter. She can, read, she can read whatever she wants to read at an age appropriate to what she so is. How about like the but Bible? Any, but what I if want, we wanted to teach the Bible? I'm Catholic. I've, I've already taught her about the Bible because so, I'm Catholic. But no, what about in school? So, absolutely. Though? Oh, in school? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. no separation, have gotten separation, separation of church. And then That's all history, all history should thing. be taught. That is African-American history, Native American history, Latino history, um, you know, Asian history, Caucasian history. All history should be taught in public schools. So I'm going to say I'm very pro-education. It's, it's so interesting because education mm -hmm. will be a topic cutting in both directions. Very pro-education. Differently than I think some many of our other panelists which means would that well. DeSantis is a thumbs down because he doesn't want to educate people on Black history, and so I take that as a well, personal I think That seemed a little like they were talking past each other. I think there was agreement the Bible should not be 
the, the, no, I don't the, the precepts of a religion should not be taught in a public school. You could teach about the history of Islam or Christianity sure. or something. And in the school library, you could have the Bible or the Quran Absolutely. or anything. You're not going to have a class on Christian teaching or Islamic yeah. teaching or Hindu teaching. Or you're doing rosaries and or, right, yeah, praying yeah. five times during the school day and all that. Yeah. yeah, of course not. But remember, what is, what is, what is at stake here? Books are being banned from libraries in the state of Florida. So while well, you and I can sit here and say, of course there should be religious texts on the shelf, there should be history books about various different kinds of people and all, all over the world and, and such on the shelves, that is not what's happening from, from a policy perspective in Florida. So she is right. He is making this an issue. The, the, the moderator there was turning it into an issue of what gets taught in school. That's a whole other conversation where I think there's a lot more political, a lot less political of, of a political binary about certain kind of subjects not being age appropriate. And I think mm -hmm. that's legitimate. Like that's for educators and parents to decide what's the best time to learn about certain things. Well, and some, but, and some of the but, books that have been challenged and taken down are they have pornographic drawings okay, in them. But They're books not... being on shelves is a different kind of issue. Having books literally taken from life, if you want to have a section that kids don't go into, move a book from a kid to an adult section, that's a I much mean, more a nuanced library. conversation to of... have. So you're saying that we should ban books from a library, ban any book from a, a library that's not appropriate for the youngest kid in a school? Is, is that what you want our reading levels and education to be really that everyone's standards of a five-year-old? I, I don't really care personally either way, but that's what the angry parents are, by and large, right. reacting to. It's not... I remember going to school early because my parents were teachers, and I would sit in the library, and I read pretty much every book in the library. And I remember getting into some of the teenage Judy Bloom books as I was like a preteen and reading about boys kissing and girls getting their period and all of these kinds of things. And it was like magical that I could explore and like find all of these resources and I would open these books and with absolutely no guidance and it was wonderful. But I promise you I was pretty much the only kid in the school <laughs> who was randomly perusing the shelves and reading anything that wasn't assigned to them. And I think this is a whole lot, a lot of nothing and it's really authoritarian and people want freedom and they want the freedom for their kids to be able to access whatever literature is on the shelves and not have books pulled prematurely, especially since there have been specific targeting of books that relate to, for one famous example, a Rosa Parks book just that simply explained how she didn't get off the bus and it's prompted the Montgomery boycott, which is an important historical event, has been pulled from the shelves because it is making, in the argument of some parents, white people feel uncomfortable about being white in a country that up until my parents were children did actually have a racial apartheid system. So our is like the, the discomfort there, that kind of what used to be called snowflake discomfort, going to get in the way of us teaching real history from the past 60 years? I mean, it might be discomfort, but that's, to my mind, substantially up to the parents. And I, if I was a school system or an educator, I wouldn't want to be introducing to the students things that their own parents are uncomfortable with because well, that parent, it's their kids. Black people are parents too. Yeah. And that parent, and there are a lot of black people to Byron's point in Florida, and that black parent wants their child to learn about all history and not have it Great. sanitized by the governor of the state That's what who, happen, then. whose authoritarian reach is making his personal political decisions what is the standard for public education. I want to align educational to options with what the parents and the families want and not everyone is going to want the same thing and I think we have to recognize that and create different options for everyone rather than having some fight at the state or national level about what everyone yeah. should have to go and through. And people can withdraw from public schools and go into private schools if they want a very Great. narrow parochial education or whatever it is, but the governor of a state 
setting what books are allowed to be on the shelf and disproportionately focusing and targeting on books that are relating to Nazism, racism in the United States of America, Jim Crow laws, um, you know, mass incarceration, religions that are not Christianity, you know, the rise of fascism. It becomes very suspicious to a lot of folks why you're wanting those kinds of books not to be on the shelf. What is it about the, that history that you're trying to um, erase from the public well, sphere? Well, if that parent heeds uh, the warning of the NAACP, should get out of the state uh, at the, because it's unsafe, I guess. <laughs> Circling back to the subject of this segment. Yes. We'll have more rising right after this. Journalist and Twitter Files author David Zweig shared yesterday that a new Journal of American Medicine paper on COVID vaccines for children finds a safety signal for peri or mitocarditis in 12 to 17 year olds buried in the text. Zweig says he calculated 93% of the study's confirmed samples are male, yet the rate for young males is not in the table, abstract, or anywhere else. He's asking why they might obscure data for the relevant cohort. So I also included a tweet from New York Times contributor Benjamin Ryan about the report, and he said a study of safety outcomes after the COVID vaccine for youths 5 to 17 years old found that myocarditis and pericarditis were the only safety concern out of 20 analyzed, occurring in 39 cases per million doses within seven days and only in 12 to 17-year-olds. David Zweig joins us now to elaborate on what he's uh, noticed in this data. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So what do you think is the is the relevance here? You're saying uh, a, a parsing of the data that you'd like to see was partly obscured uh, because it was not broken down by, by sex, although 93% were male. So do, do you think there would be a more illust illustrative uh, breakdown if it was just the male, even though most of them were male? Right. Yeah, so the reason this caught my eye is this particular study, I don't think came out with anything um, particularly revelatory. Um, most of the findings at a quick glance um, echo with what we've seen regarding myocarditis and pericarditis um, incidents following vaccine in, in young people. So it's not that the results themselves were, were you know, some sort of uh, bombshell. There, there's been, you know, a dozen, if not several dozen studies um, that have come out in the last couple of years on this. But what did jump out at me was the fact that the sort of top line finding was, don't worry, here the rates, it's very rare, and they cite the rate for, uh, for five to 17 year olds in general. Um, and there were two things that were strange about the way they, they worded that. They say here, um, it should be noted that myocarditis or pericarditis is a rare event with an average incidence of 39.4 cases per million doses administered in children five to 17 years. Now, here's the interesting thing. In the same study, they tell you that the, in the age bracket where it really only mattered were 12 to 17 year olds. So the first question is, why would they have a top line finding where they talk about the rate from five to 17 when we know the real group we're worried about that according to their own data, we're 12 to 17 year olds, that's number one. And then number two, why are they talking about males and females together when we know that almost all of the cases were in young males according to their data in their own study? And that's, and we can get into this, but this is a pattern that I've seen over the last several years. 
um, in, in regarding a bunch of topics, but in particular related to um, myocarditis incidents following the vaccination. Because, because so, really, uh, just to follow up, <laughs> honestly, even from like a pro-vax perspective, I guess, like I guess you could look at that and say th their their top line finding is. Um, misstating a little bit uh, if, if it's if it's not leading with the fact that these were all uh, or these were overwhelmingly male subjects, they could actually be um, disguising how safe it is for female subjects, or that they just don't have relevant data on that, given that it was mostly males, right? I think that's a really good point. It's like so if you have one group that that's you know the vast majority of these um, adverse events. Um, and then you're bundling it together, that does two things. The one I'm most worried about is obscuring a higher incidence for one particular group, but as you noted, what that also does is it artificially inflates the incidence for the other groups who are at lower risk. Um, so there's really two things that are happening, and this has happened repeatedly. One of the things that I wrote about a couple years ago, um, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, had mentioned this was when the, the um, myocarditis really started getting into the news more. And she did a press conference and said, don't worry, look, it's like 30 to 40 incidences per million. Um, and, you know, it's mostly self-limiting. Don't worry. But what she didn't say was she bundled everyone together. The rate for young males was more than double. Um, that instance in the CDC's own data that they presented at at a um, at one of their um, advisory committee meetings um, shortly before Walensky's statement. So there's this pattern, and 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 this study that did it again is is not the only one. Whether it's from the studies themselves or whether it's from the CDC director, where they continue to not specifically mention young males and in particular age bracket and instead you take that and then just bundle them. I've seen studies where they include it from 12 year olds up to 34 or 39 year olds. Again, it, this is against the sort of basic principles of epidemiology and really against common sense. You don't need to be a public health expert um, to sort of see why this would be problematic when you continue to present the data in this manner. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just want to be really clear about what the top lines of this really are. They looked at 39, uh, sorry, they looked at tw uh, uh, 20 different kinds of potential risk factors, ailments, side effects. Out of those 20, there were only two with these uh, so-called safety signals, meaning an unexplained correlation between the treatment and this bad outcome. That, that seemed to show up, which were myocarditis and pericarditis, these like inflammation of the heart. And that the incidence of those things occurring among the people studied was 39 cases per 1 million doses. So the argument here, now, and moreover, you're saying that because they are lumping in males and females, and we know that myocarditis, the incidence of myocarditis from other studies is higher in young men, that it is obscuring that the number could be, you just mentioned another study, twice as high as it might otherwise be. But in this particular study, 93% of the people in the sample are already male. So at best, you would have a 7% increase in what the number, the incidence rate is gonna look like if they were all male, assuming that there's none, basically zero in women and it's all in men or girls and boys. And so what we, what we focusing on here is that instead of, say, 39 cases out of a million of myocarditis, there might be 
43 cases out of a million of myocarditis and that this is, you know, I think that my, some people might be asking, is that really so significant, statistically significant that it is evidence of an intent to mislead as opposed to an, an, an attempt by the researchers in the first instance to basically focus on men or boys because they know, to your point, that boys are the people that are most affected by this particular disease. I think you're a little confused about the data in the study. They, the, they, the study was of males and females, and I believe they were roughly uh, equal in, their, um, in the representation in the, in the participant pool um, that they included. Um, but of the cases of myocarditis, um, I'm looking at the, at the study here, 25 of, 20, of the 27, they, they, they did a, which, which is smart, they did a sort of um, chart review where they kicked out actually a bunch of cases. So the, the rate of myocarditis was higher. They did a more stringent um, process where they um, threw out a bunch of them. So of the sample cases that they looked at, um, like 93% of them were males. Do you understand? Okay, so, so it's, so, it's, it's yes. actually, it's not the way you were presenting it. It's, it's almost all of the cases were males, even though the entire pool that they were looking at were males and females. Again, the findings here are not particularly revelatory. The thing that's interesting is, so let, let's do a hypothetical. Imagine there's a treatment or a, um, a vaccine or, or a medicine that affects one particular group more than other groups. And sometimes this happens for any number of reasons. So imagine it's um, women of color have an incidence rate that's double or triple that of the general population. And a study comes out and they say, Great news, the incident is one in 100,000 um, for whatever the thing is. We looked at the study, you know, we looked at the population, this is fine. I suspect people would be, find it problematic that they didn't say, but wait, the incidence for um, women of color is actually four times that. Do you understand what I'm saying? And no, this is something that has happened I'm confused about your, your tweet though, David. You tweeted, mm -hmm. Buried in the text, I calculated 93% of confirmed sample are male. What did you mean by that? Does that mean that 93% of the people study in the study sampled are not are male? 93%, no, 93% of, um, of the confirmed cases, this is after they threw out um, a bunch of cases, 93% of them were male. Almost all of the, of the incidents of myocarditis in this age group were in young males. So is that not a disclosure of the exactly the kind of reporting that you'd like, that this is something that is overrepresented in men or boys, and that people who are looking to vaccinate their young male children should have more concerns about than if they have young female children? Right. So the, the thing is, this is, I'm looking, this is buried way, way down in paragraph, you know, 15 or something in there. And what I'm saying to me, uh, it, that, that should be in the abstract, which is, you know, runs at the top. That should be in the conclusion. Here's the group we're concerned about. This is, we know that this particular cohort of people, young males, for, for any number of reasons, they are the ones who are most affected um, by this adverse event related to the vaccine. And it, that the only mention of that, where it's sort of sliced out, is, you know, buried in the text and, you know, way, way down in paragraph whatever. Um, typically in a study, what you would like to see researchers do is in the abstract itself and in the conclusion, they're gonna highlight the most important finding for what group are we concerned about? The great news about this study, which again is not new, is that 
look, it looks like these by and large are very safe. They didn't find a signal in any number of other um, adverse events. That's great news. Um, to me, what's interesting is you have something, there is a particular group we're worried about. And once again, the information related to this particular group, what we want to know wasn't that should be in the title, practically, or at least should be in the abstract, in my view. And from talking with epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists, that is typically what you want to do. If you actually have the granular data on a particular cohort who are most affected by some, whether it's for vaccines or a medication or something else, that's the, the, the thing that you really want to highlight. And as I mentioned, you know, the example from, from Rochelle Walensky, you know, is a similar thing where she said, oh, it's 30 to 40 cases. Um, but, but, you know, but she didn't, but she grouped everyone together. So this to me, what, what the reason I tweeted about it is again, this fits in a pattern that we've seen um, repeatedly about sort of bundling one, the, the, the data from one particular group and grouping it either with both sexes or grouping it with a larger age bracket. Um, and so much so that it's not just in the studies, but you have the CDC director um, grouping things in this manner. And like I said, if you can imagine a different cohort, a different group, whether it's um, women or a certain minority groups or whomever it is, where this same type of thing was happening, I, it's, I think people will be very upset about it. Hmm. David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The way the media has been covering the battle in Bakhmut is under fire from conservatives. A tweet from the media account DC Drano, run by Rogan O'Handley, who's a Turning Point USA ambassador, reads this. They don't want you to know that Russia taking Bakhmut was a devastating loss. Notice how Biden is now planning to send F-16s to Ukraine. That's not a sign of winning. It's clear desperation after the U.S. dumped 100 plus billion into a foreign country instead of helping Americans. Author of bottom-up newsletter on Substack, David Sachs, tweeted yesterday, what is the significance of Bakhmut? Here's what the MSM should be telling you. Firstly, that its regional transport and logistics hub, Bakhmut gives Russia access to key roads and rail. It places larger cities of Kramatorsk and Slovyansk within easy range of Russian artillery. Hence Zelensky's earlier comment that the loss of Bakhmut would give the Russians an, quote, open road to the rest of the Donetsk. He continued, unique defensive fortifications, Bakhmut's network of subterranean salt mines and tunnels, 100 plus miles, contributed to its defensibility. It also provides an underground complex to stockpile weapons, munitions, and equipment. Ukraine has other lines of defense, but Bakhmut may have been unique. Sachs also wrote, Bakhmut became a rallying cry for Ukrainian resistance. Zelensky called it, quote, the fortress of our morale and gave a Bakhmut flag to the U.S. Congress when he visited. He said, the fight for Bakhmut will change the trajectory of our war for independence and for freedom. Russia may have used Bakhmut as a trap to lure in Ukrainian troops and generals, causing them massive casualties and imperiling the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Prigzone uh, videos claiming the Russians were running out of ammo, which were equally reported by the mainstream media, may have been a part of that trap. Yeah, I, I saw a lot of people uh, on the left actually talking about this New York Times piece that came out over the weekend. Um, of course, you know, as we said, there in the lead-up was a lot of significance placed on Bakhmut by Ukraine, Bakhmut having fallen, the title of the New York Times pieces, as Russia claims victory in Bakhmut, Ukraine sees opportunity among ruins. I read the article. It wasn't clear to me what the broader opportunity was. The article repeatedly downplays uh, the loss. Here's uh, from the article. Um, 
But the city is now in ruins and controlling it would not necessarily help Moscow toward its larger stated goal, conquering the entire eastern region of Donbass, refuting all of the strategic um, purposes of the region that was laid out in the David Sachs tweet. It, 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 it is hard to miss the pivot mm -hmm. that has been undertaken by the media on this one now that Bakhmut has, in fact— Fallen under Russian yeah, control. that's some copium. Uh, the New York Times, that was from a few days ago, I think. Yeah, and they have another one of these stories from yesterday. Russia, it's a very similar uh, headline and framing. Russia claims Bakhmut, but some see a Pyrrhic victory, one of those victories that is so costly it's absolutely a loss. The subhead is uh, thousands of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers died there, but the cost for Moscow was especially steep. Why was it especially steep for Moscow? Moscow has more soldiers than Ukraine. Y yes, I I'm sure it was a devastating number of losses. They're estimating 20,000 um, uh, uh, killed, 100,000 Russians wounded. Yeah. But again, Russia has vastly more forces. So I I'm sure Ukraine I inflicted, it it did not give it up easily, uh, by all indications. Uh, the Russians lost a lot. The city has been reduced to rubble, so that does reduce its its strategic value a little bit. But I mean, Ukraine is trying to is, is trying to claim more and more territory across the country. Right. It's, it's not, um, if it can't occupy a city that still has people in it, I mean, that's, that's yeah, not the, the, the end of the world for the Russian perspective. They're killing a lot of Ukrainians. I mean, it's, it's very sad. This war yeah. needs to end. People are dying. Uh, left and right on both sides. But uh, but you're being, you know, we in the West, it's almost like we're being spun to think that things are going well for Ukraine. Always. Always things aren't going well for anyone because lots of people are dying and there's no end in sight to this conflict. But the Ukraine, Ukraine is not about to recapture its entire country, march into Russia and overflow Vladimir Putin. That's just not realistic. Yeah, the framing of the casualty numbers is interesting from a historical perspective. You know, Russia lost more soldiers than anyone during World War II. They still won the war. Yeah. Um, that sacrifice is perhaps the but-for cause of the West, of, of the Allies winning World War II. So, I mean, it, it is a kind of like a missing the forest for the, the trees kind of a framing. A, a little lower down in the article I was reading from before, a Russian uh, a, a colonel, a Ukrainian colonel, Suri Herbersky, uh, said on Ukrainian news media um, that the Russian capture of Bakhmut will mean nothing, actually. The Russians have exhausted their offensive capabilities. That's why they're so desperately, uh, desperately declared they have captured Bakhmut. I mean, that would land better if there hadn't been statement after statement, report after report about what Ukrainians saw and the value of Bakhmut and framing of Ukrainian successes and Bakhmut as indicative of uh, broader successes in the war. It's also worth noting, um, Trita Parsi, frequent guest of this show, uh, of the Quincy Institute uh, foreign policy expert, um, observed, observed this morning, he thinks that something is happening. He said, quote, Europeans are talking about peace talks negotiations to end the war in Ukraine and even mentioned uh, India, Brazil, and China in those talks. Just a few weeks ago, that was treated as treasonous. And it is, it, it's interesting that perhaps some uh, realities on the ground have led to a change in tone um, in negotiations. Remember, just last summer, the end of last year, there was a huge blow up among progressives because there was just mm. a suggestion in a letter to have peace talks. Now it seems like that might be a real reality. I mean, there will be there will be talks eventually. Yeah. The question is how many people have to die before there are realistic talks about 
Russia getting something it wants so that the rest of Ukraine can be protected against future aggression. That's how it will end. The question is when. The question is how many more cities have to suffer the fate of Bakhmut until we get to that point. Uh, meanwhile, writer Caitlin Johnson tweeted over the weekend that the U.S. has just signed off on both F-16s for Ukraine and attacks on Crimea using U.S.-made weapons, both of which have drawn dire warnings from nuclear-armed Russia, and both of which would have been unthinkable just a few months ago. Right, we're continuing down the same course of unlimited financial support resources to Ukraine uh, at the risk of being drawn into a more obvious and more direct confrontation with Russia, a nuclear-armed power, bringing us to the precipice of World War III. How many times do you have to say, this does not seem like a good idea? Yeah, it is confusing. I mean, there seems to clearly, I think, been a shift from we'll fight to the last Ukrainian to I guess we have to be open to negotiations. But weapons keep getting sent. There have been stories about uh, uh, an incredible grift um, with the uh, arms industry, where people have noted that over the course of uh, decades, the price of various kinds of equipment has skyrocketed. Um, the, the, the cost that the arms companies are charging the government is going up and up. They're keeping enormous shares of profits. There are people that are earning a great deal off of this war, as thousands of Ukrainians and Russians are dying in these horrific battles. And, uh, you know, it, it is frustrating that there aren't more mainstream calls for peace in either party, to be honest. The blob is still blobbing strong, um, and we'll continue to follow and see if there's any more significant shifts uh, over what happens with the resolution mm -hmm. of this war as a consequence of this particularly devastating uh, defeat in Bakhmut. And I think, again, we should just em emphasize the underhandedness of the media framing mm -hmm. of this story. It, it, the New York Times here, that's two stories mm -hmm. we called out in a row, really trying to, um, I think, make a open-minded person arrive at a different conclusion right. than the truth, yep. frankly. All right, more rising right after this. The Daily Beast is out with a new op-ed targeting Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, and other so-called, quote, apocalyptic centrists. The author writes, the grandiosity of con the conspiracy theories pushed by Musk and his cohort, which include hugely popular and influential intellectual dark web commentators like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, are what make them exceptional. These aren't goofy UFO conspiracy theories. This is serious stuff. The kind of stuff that would make you crazy enough to stack the Capitol, threaten the life of the vice president and speaker of the house, and think you're the good guy. Mm. MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan uh, celebrated the piece, tweeting, very good piece on the allure and appeal of conspiracy theories online. Um, more hating on Elon Musk and Joe Rogan, which is a substitute for personality for some mainstream media mouthpieces these days. Um, never any self-reflection on all the conspiracy theories that they and their publications have bought into for years relating to COVID, relating to Russiagate, no apology, no admittance of wrongdoing. It's all you're a conspiracy theorist. Yes, admittedly, some of the things that Elon Musk has tweeted have turned out to be wrong. He tweets way too much. Um, he buys into some th stuff that I think is wrong, um, but they act like that. He's the only first person to say something or express an idea that's wrong. Same thing of Joe Rogan, who uh, platforms all sorts of people from all corners of the political spectrum. Some, I think, again, are wrong. Some I disagree with. 
but they have a desire to suppress this. It's threatening to them. Yeah, of course that's true. I think this piece differs from some others because it is trying to wrestle with the appeal of some shows that obviously many liberal commentators like Mehdi Hassan have a distaste for. But instead of writing it off as insignificant, completely fringe, it actually gives some respect to it, saying it's not like some fringe UFO conspiracy theory. It is at least trying to wrestle with why so much of this stuff is appealing. Now, my argument would be that when you live in a world where there really are huge moneyed institutions that spend so much of their try time trying to um, exploit the public, extract wealth from the working class, change our legal system so that the laws and codes and tax systems and, and legal liability structures benefit people who have amassed a great deal of wealth to the detriment of the working class, then the line between what is in fact a conspiracy theory and reality is in fact narrow. When you live in a world where we've had so many mistakes made around COVID, the Tuskegee experiments, any number of medical malpractice, the thalidomide, uh, the baby powder lawsuits, you know, Vioxx over the course of American history. Of course, people are going to be skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry, and they should, not just for those kinds of uh, pointed moments of malfeasance, but because it's a for-profit industry that puts its own profits before the health of uh, the American public, and it should really be scrutinized. And so I do think it is a step in the right direction for people to be asking questions for mainstream liberal publications to be, and, and mainstream conservative publications to be asking questions about why so many people are drawn to spaces where they don't feel so much pressure to conform with the kind of bog party standard line, whether it's about military interventionism, public health, um, or, or race or some other things. But I also do think it's worth having a conversation about what it means if the door is open because there really are real conspiracies in the world that need to be talked about. What does it mean when you get to the point where um, a shooter says that he's interested in Tim Pool, Tim Pool not only denies the relationship or denies, you know, as he should say, I don't support a shooting, but goes on to instead say, was the person even really into me? Was this person even really um, a Nazi? He was covered in these tattoos that the local police department have reported, really confirmed were there in fact. And you have these kind of spirals of conspiracy theories where it's much more attenuated from reality. And it does seem to be shielding a certain kind of hateful ideology that everyone kind of in the public knows you can't openly say like Nazis are bad, uh, sorry, Nazis are good, but you do have people in these spaces saying things like, well, they're just trying to make him into a Nazi to make us look bad. Well, who's the us? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, there are examples of that happening. The Jared Loeffner shooting of uh, Gabrielle Giffords is a great example where that was chalked up to the shooter having seen a target over Sarah pa uh, the Sarah Palin right. target thing, which was totally made up by the media. She actually later sued the New York Times yeah. over it. That they is got it absolutely so true. That happened. Let me ask you this. Does the fact of that having happened before mean that every Nazi that shoots someone now we're supposed to argue that they're not a Nazi? No. So that's that's the point. Like, there's all of this whataboutism, like, this happened this time. This Like, I think that every case should be investigated and people should look. But when you have a, a picture of a decedent with a tattoo on their hand that's publicly available, and then a picture of the decedent while alive, having just gotten his tattoos, and the tattoos mm -hmm. match up, and the conservative police department in a conservative locality in Texas affirms that the person is covered in swastika tattoos, you don't have to buy into the idea that he is a quote-unquote white supremacist. If you think Nazis weren't white supremacist, 
that's your battle. Go fight it on the internet. I have no interest in fighting with you. But we do live in a world where I think legitimate concerns about all the ways that we've been misled rather by the mainstream media, et cetera, have gotten to a place where it's very 1984. It's like, are you going to believe your eyes that are seeing the evidence on the screen? Or are you going to believe some other voices that say, no, your eyes aren't telling you the truth about the literal inked pictures on a shooter's body. You bring this one up a lot. This seems to have really gotten under your skin. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like Nazism, and it concerns me a great deal. What? Well, uh, no one does. Well, that's it. If someone said, hey, I'm doing something on behalf of Brianna Joy Gray, mm -hmm. and I am a Nazi, it would be so easy for me to say, whoa, that sucks. Nazism is terrible. I don't condone any of that behavior and also that underlying belief system. But that is not, in fact, what has been happening with the, the Allen shooter. And I bring it up because it's not just some niche internet thing. Tim Pool is an enormously popular commentator. And this was one where Elon Musk, the richest man in the world and the owner of Twitter, weighed in and seemed to corroborate the theory, saying something along the lines of, hmm, interesting, in the way that he does under the tweet thread, seeming to lend a lot of credibility to the theory that despite report after report in weeks and weeks that have now gone by since the shooting, that this person was not, in fact, emblazoned with Nazi insignia. So I don't know. Does, is that does not feel significant to you? Are you? Is that not disturbing to you that we live in a world where kind of that, that sort of unsubstantiated, instinctive questioning of whether or not an, uh, someone who's self-identified as a Nazi really is a Nazi feels, feels like a shift away from, I think, some really healthy skepticism that's been happening over the last few years? I mean, I, I think about it similarly with uh, Elon had earlier tweeted that maybe there's more to this story about um, the Paul Pelosi attacker, yeah. uh, which it very quickly turned out that it, it was a crazy yeah. person trying to get in there and actually attacked him. Yeah. And there really isn't anything ambiguous about it when, once you watch the police footage. And so that was a just asking questions that turned out to be um, not fruitful, not productive. And that happens. And this sounds like another case of that. Um, but I don't. Like, I, do I think it's like the most significant development or goof of all time? No, especially in a media ecosystem, again, where mainstream people make substantial, who, who have the proper train, supposedly there's the training of journalists and editors and all of that, and get fundamental, important, massive stories wrong, and then wonder why there's no longer trust in them. I mean, you were, and you were talking about the moneyed interests. I mean, the Daily Beast, whose article were kicked off this segment, is owned by a media conglomerate, IAC. Mehdi yeah. Hassan, who thinks this is a great article, it's owned by it's MSNBC, which is owned by, what, Comcast. Yeah. Um, the, the Daily Beast certainly isn't my uh, paper choice or paper record. And yeah. I have some critiques of this article as well. So they're, just, they're making fun it's... of people who have a, a perspective outside their own, who, who have questioned and sometimes got it right and sometimes got it wrong, which is more than you can say for them. No, I, I think you can also say that MSNBC has sometimes got it right and sometimes got it wrong. Everybody sometimes gets it right and sometimes gets it wrong. That's the facts. Now, you can say that people disproportionately are skewed in one direction or another, and, et cetera, and I think that's also a fair complaint. I sit here every single day on my podcast and, on, and elsewhere doing media criticism of liberal media, a liberal media that has personally attacked me in ways the conservative media never has and who I feel a lot of frustration with, for sure. But I am also frustrated with people running cover for 
self-described Nazis on the internet. And I think that we can all have both of those things in our heads at the same time. I am a little frustrated that there's this kind of deflection that happens, in my view, whenever we start to talk about, I sit here and I'm very open to criticize my, my team, as it were. I'm critical of Bernie Sanders, I'm critical of Marianne Williamson, I'm critical of liberals who I don't consider to be on my team, as it were, but are much closer to me ideologically than, let's say, Republicans. But when we, it comes time to not just criticize a conservative, but someone who is literally running cover for a self-described Nazi, I feel like there's a, a necessary amount of tension and pushback, and I'm not saying with you particular, in particular, Robbie, but generally speaking on the internet, there doesn't seem to be that same openness to freedom of thought, ideas, self-criticism, and honesty that some corners of the internet really pride themselves as having had. So I do think there needs to be skepticism. I think the, the article is good in investigating why skepticism is so popular. I think skepticism is a good thing, but I do think it should be, be uh, applied in an in even way and that we should all be able to reflect on ways in which our own defensiveness about media bias sometimes obscures Definitely apply skepticism. I mean, we're, I, we're critical of, I'm critical of, I don't like you, I, well, I don't know exactly how you consider, if you consider yourself part of the Democratic Party or not. I don't really no, consider I myself don't. part of the Republican Party, like you and your party. So I'm very critical of it and Trump and which I, I've recognized that the ideological uh, the ideological coalition that has dominated the Republican Party, with some exceptions on foreign policy, is actually kind of anathema to my own ideas, and I've been criticizing it for that direction. I think you get a lot of criticism of, I guess, both parties and both media ecosystems. Maybe we're more critical of the mainstream media ecosystem because we consider ourselves not part of it But equally, don't you think but, that these independent... Look, but I don't think anyone would watch our show and think we've been overly kind to Elon Musk. No, I'm not talking... I specifically said I'm not talking about you or this show. I'm talking about the... Look. There are problems with uh, corporate media, with mainstream establishment media. You can address some of those problems by going independent, but there are additional separate problems with independent media, including absolutely no oversight and no kind of structural liability when people start to say things that are patently false. Tim Pool <laughs> has been connected to this particular shooter. The shooter likes Tim Pool. Now, that's not Tim Pool's fault necessarily. People like who they like. The guy maybe also liked to watch Succession. That doesn't mean it's Succession's fault that he murdered people so heinously. But when someone is saying, hey, I like you, you have your, I like your ideology, I think that what you're saying is making me, you know, those kinds mm -hmm. of things. And the response is, okay, but do we really know that he was a Nazi? And not, oh my gosh. Do we really know that he's a Nazi is an unhelpful framing? I agree. There are, if you put a Nazi tattoo on yourself, like, I might also wonder, what else is going, has gone wrong with you? What, are, are you a, are you a crazy person? Are you a, have you really, you've studied, like you've sat down with Mein Kampf, you're an expert, you've committed yourself to the tenets of furthering Nazism, and you're gonna, and, and now you're implementing phase one, which is to do a bunch of violent crime and murder. Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't, there's not a necessary, like, I, I think people who are damaged, is, deranged, and crazy seek out this is, this validating about the, the extremist. Shooter. 
This is about Tim Pool and Elon Musk's response to the shooter. So I know everyone wants to go and have a conversation about mental health and what caused the shooter to shoot. We're talking right now about a media criticism article. And we're talking about the media, these media figures' response, the owner of Twitter and a major podcaster's response to learning about a, a shooter's ideology. Their response was to try to cast doubt on that the shooter, in fact, had that ideology because their perception was that if the shooter had that Nazi ideology, it would make them look bad. Now, why would you think that someone who had a Nazi ideology makes you look bad? Because they're trying to tart those people, Tim Pool and Elon Musk, as Nazis. Well, Elon Musk volunteered himself Nazi into it by by weighing in. So really, he, he made the choice to piggyback on Tim, Tim Pool's like, obstruction campaign, attempt to obscure what was going on there. Tim Pool, like I said, I don't know, I've said this a million times, I don't want to belabor the point. You can just say I'm not a Nazi and I don't like that and right. move on. And then, and then people piling on him would be in bad faith. But we're trying to probe motives. The motives of the mainstream media people is to say Nazism is rising because Tim Pool is allowed to speak and we need to shut him down to prevent Nazi violence everywhere. Isn't it possible just to disagree with that? Can I sit here and say, I don't think, I think that some of the reports about the rise of Nazism are overstated, or a rise of white mm -hmm. supremacy. I think others are very much true, and the people are denying in denial. Um, but I think that uh, you shouldn't preemptively prevent people absent much, much, high, much higher standard, a much higher First Amendment standard from being able to talk and be on social media apps, et cetera. In fact, it's another thing I've criticized Elon Musk for when he kicked Kanye West off the platform. I have defended Kanye West despite thinking his tweets were abhorrent. His swastika tweet, I think, was not in violation of Twitter's policy. So I am consistently criticizing all of these figures for violating these free speech principles. I also am criticizing Tim Pool's choice here to, instead of distancing himself from someone who's a self-identified Nazi, trying to, frankly, lie about the relationship, uh, the, about the, the, the identity, the self-described, well-corroborated, well-documented mm -hmm. political choices of that shooter. And I think that's a problem in addition to anybody who's trying to do But I didn't say otherwise. It sounds like, again, I, I, I think you're arguing against some maybe people online who are doing that. I said that wasn't a good move for them because it seems pretty obvious that this person does actually have a Nazi tattoo, and, and I, I, I Robbie, believe you, you what the said fan was. A few minutes so. ago, you said, you said, well, this seems to be a, this, you, you bring that up a lot. This seems to be a, mm -hmm. a focus up for you a lot. So I, I'm explaining to you why it's, I come and back to it. Every time you've brought it up, I've said, yeah, seems like a Nazi. That was a bad move. That was just wrong to say that, to suggest that it was fabricated or something. Yeah, so, I, you know, but it's, Again, this is, so we're not arguing. No, but it's about Tim Pool, and I'm, I'm bringing that as an example. So if you agree with me that it is wrong of Tim Pool to have taken that position, that the kind of a, a, a world of skepticism that leads people to not believe their eyes in a context like that is a problem. Skepticism worth, that the photos were doctored worth, it was not right accurate, right or healthy. Well, it was just to be really clear. What was so bizarre about it is that. We knew the shoot. As I the, said, there were the last tattoos. Five times we talked there are about tattoos it. on this dead, on this dece deceased shooter. Right. The tattoos, pictures of the tattoos, are of him alive, sometime in the past. Right. We know that he's alive in the photos. It seems like he took the photos right after he got the tattoo, because that's oftentimes when people take their shirt off in 
document what they've just done. I, yeah, I didn't get out my magnifying glass and Sherlock Holmes this. The local sheriff said the guy has the tattoos, but no, no, let so me, I let believe me that he has the tattoos. Cl close the loop. Because the picture of the tattoos that was very clear with him shirtless was an older picture, people were saying, well, the tattoos are fresh. As though that's a photo of him after he perpetrated the event or just before he did the, the shooting. So again, there's a certain kind of very obvious lack of logic to some of these conspiracy theories that people like Elon Musk are falling for. And yet because of the environment, getting back to the article, because of the environment that we're in, in addition to really good things that people should be skeptical about rising to the top, some kind of bizarre stuff is rising to the top. And I do think that we're going to have to continue to have a national conversation about how to tease out you know, th those different kinds of stories and make sure that I think a healthy environment of skepticism isn't used to advance, I think, ideologies that are very pernicious and hateful. That's all. They should have said, uh, the mainstream people should have said, the idea that he has Nazi tattoos is Russia-originated misinformation, and then everyone would accept that he has Nazi <laughs> tattoos. So that would obviously be not be true. Okay, more rising after this. Christian conservatives are calling to boycott Target after one of the company's pride partners made light of Satanism, with one of the brand's merchandise reading, Satanism respects pronouns. This comes as the retail giant is ramping up their pride-related merchandise. According to the Washington Examiner, the UK brand Abberellen Ab 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 is headed by a self-proclaimed gay transgender man. Uh, I should say a self-identified gay transgender man known as Eric and promotes clothing that includes slogans reading uh, the following. Satanism respects pronouns, cure transphobia, not trans people. A tote bag that reads, too queer for here, and a messenger pack that reads, we belong everywhere. So, now it's Satanism, Brianna. What's next? No. I mean, this is all kind of, obviously... I, I don't believe that this designer thinks that Satan is real. Is real? So I don't. So th there's like a mismatch because I yeah. guess <clears throat> some Christians do believe that Satan is you real. You believe so, what you want to believe. Yeah. And you can shop where you want to shop. And mm -hmm. if that's not Target, that's fine by me. God bless. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, I have never operated uh, on the basis of the, the, of the, on the belief that a store should cater exclusively to me and my interests. I regularly shop at stores that sell men's clothing that I'm not personally trying to buy, that sell children's clothing that I'm not trying to personally buy, that, buy, that sell Android products when I'm an Apple girl. And I don't feel like my ideological preferences need to be mm -hmm. The, the standard of the store. I am not religious. I don't mind if a store sells religious paraphernalia. Um, I, I understand that people very much don't think that transgenderism is real uh, and they don't like, they don't want their children to be trans and they can try as hard as they can to raise their children not to be trans. That is their right to do that in their own house. And if they want to boycott Target because they feel like having rainbow flags, in the presence of their children, or just rainbows generally on shirts, is um, indoctrinating their children. Uh, they don't want to see big rainbow. I, I, I really respect their choice not to uh, patronize that establishment. Let's play that uh, TikTok of a conservative, I believe it's from The Federalist, further explaining the issue. 
So Target has hired Eric, a self-proclaimed gay trans man, to design some of its clothing for Pride Month. After a quick look through Eric's Instagram, we learned something pretty interesting. He has an obsession with Satanism. He's designed a Satan Respects Pronouns t-shirt, gay as hell stickers, and stained glass windows with the words, trans bodies are holy. One of Eric's most disturbing designs is a demonic creature with a horned skull and mutilated breasts. Eric also uses some pretty violent imagery. He has a burn down the system lighter, a we bash back mace, and time's up for the transphobes skull pins. And in March, he said that in order to, quote, keep the transphobes at bay, we must eradicate them. Hmm. I respect her decision not to like those things. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not especially outraged by their outrage. Um, yeah. Here's, <laughs> here's something we can comment on. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican, tweeted this. Ooh, I can't read it from where I'm sitting. I uh, don't even, have it on even, my... Oh, even, don't, no, 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 I can do it. Okay. You're going to try to show me up, right. you not wearing glasses person. <laughs> even by the standards of woke corporations, Target's partnership with a Satanist to push the trans agenda on children is remarkable. The next time, here's what I'm most interested in. The next time Target comes begging for help, Republicans should respond, best of luck. I wonder what he means by come begging for help. Because PPP so funds? if Target <laughs> wants special handouts from the government, yeah. I would hope that Republicans would say best of luck, regardless, regardless. of how many trans t-shirts Satanist, Baphomet, whatever that, the demon with the, with the horns is. Um, I don't know. I mean, I probably do know if we want to go into. Uh, Isn't it just the devil? Isn't he just supposed to have no, horns? No, there's a specific. Um, anyway, there's the, the goat. We won't go there. I mean, goats have been very common in religion and pagan iconography, which is why they were adopted to Christianity when they yeah. um, came in. Do you know it. what happens when you cross <laughs> a goat with a dragon and a lion? You get a chimera. Anyway, what does, what is the, like, if Target's coming for handoffs, uh, handouts, yeah. say no. Republicans say no. By the same token, if, if Target just wants a friendly business, uh, business climate for all the businesses, I, I mean, I would, I, I think Republicans, as has historically has been their position on the issues, is, should make this, their states, their jurisdictions, mm -hmm friendly places for businesses to open and sell goods and employ people, not with specific, not with industry specific or firm specific favorable policies, policies that apply across the board. So no special statuses for very, or no tax break for you. And we're going to fund that with a tax raise on you, but just the same policies, simple, fair, not overly punitive, that's what the Republican agenda should be. So I don't, so Target shouldn't get special treatment, special favorable treatment or special negative treatment, period, regardless of its, and it definitely shouldn't get it because it's done something that Republicans don't like. It's almost like there's no free market in the first place. Well, why is it like that? Because we live in a world where there are massive multi-million dollar government subsidies going to certain industries, including principally. Yeah, those are bad. We should get rid of those yeah, so that so, we can have a free market. 
<laughs> sure. So these Republicans who have been advocating for people to vote for them because they protect the free market are revealing themselves as having never been invested in anything remotely 100%. approximating freedom. Republicans are massive and, traitors to the free market. And now we now have repeatedly, as the theme emerging among Republican legislators, that they feel like it's appropriate to use money coercively and, and government grants coercively. I know you act like I never criticize Republicans, just, like, but me, I very let me much hate all the those sentence, things. Though, okay? To the use government I'll start again. <laughs> the Republicans repeatedly across the country are now as a pattern from Florida and now beyond and to use the, the, the threat of withdrawing government funds, not for any broader ideological purpose, not because it's geared toward the benefit of the people in those constituencies, not because it's boosting the market or making the, the America more free or improving the economy, but to impose their ideological whims, which is, what's the word? Authoritarian. And exactly what so many Republican voters are strongly against. So here's the thing. I talked about the polling about trans issues a little bit earlier in the show. The reality is that while most people are not wild about, let's say, their own kid potentially being trans and are confused about things like um, gender-affirming surgery for youth, they are also very much against all of the hand-wringing and targeting of trans people and the ew, squeaky, gross stu like stuff in a lot of these TikToks and the idea that a child passing a rainbow, a literal symbol of happiness and renewal, is going to turn their kid gay in the aisles of Target. So this is a this is a tricky issue for Republicans to find the, the quote unquote right amount of investment in these sorts of issues. I would not recommend that they try to make a national issue and convince, explain to them, spend, spend airtime explaining to Americans why they should be very afraid of a, past, a pastel goat. Um, I don't want to break it to anybody. There's a band called Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath has been around for a long time, whose devilly t-shirts are sold at Walmart Target and every other mainstream retailer. So if this is the boycott we're going to do, there's a lot of boycotting to be done. But hey, it's America, and that's Ozzy right. Osbourne bit the head of a bat off. Uh, he did do that on stage, right? <laughs> that's the real no-no in <laughs> post-pandemic 2023. I don't want anybody. Satanism, fine. I don't want anybody out there eating no bats anywhere in. Uh, America or the rest of the planet. <laughs> so, none of that. Yeah. Tomorrow on Rising, <laughs> we'll be back right here, same time, same place. I hope we have as uh, exciting topics tomorrow as we did today. Brianna? One can only hope and dream. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.